The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Tonight we wrap up our two-part series on Daniel 8 as we continue in this summer series from the prophecy of Daniel, which should run through the end of July. The odds makers make their living trying to predict the likely winners of various sporting events, the Belmont Stakes that took place yesterday, the NBA championship that is going on this week, the upcoming Soccer World Cup this summer. The power to predict the future is coveted by those who might strike it rich through gambling, through investments. However, true knowledge, true insight into things to come is indeed a heavy burden. Daniel's vision gives him insights into things foretold and interpreted by an angel. These are dark and dreadful things. They leave him weighed down, sick and overwhelmed. Daniel must be made low before he is raised up high. If we would follow in his step footpaths to understand the ways of God, let us hear the interpretation to the vision beginning in Daniel chapter 8, verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when I came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me, and he made me stand up. And he said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind he shall become great. 
Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even arise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I arose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. This is God's holy, inspired word. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we would ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our great Redeemer. Amen. Suppose a company in the future claimed that it had perfected the technology of predicting with testable accuracy of the length of your life based upon your DNA and your present health and your life circumstances, I would venture to guess that there would be many people in our culture tempted to pay, to pay high sums of money to catch a glimpse into the crystal ball to understand their personal health future. Or what if another company offered to parents the ability to assess the child's prospects of how successful they might become based upon their DNA and and trying to predict how successful they would be academically, athletically, or even their social aptitude. No doubt many parents would be tempted to take the bait to clarify the often hazy future of children. You know, I believe that many people would assume that gaining such knowledge, if affordable, would be worth it, would be valuable. And not many would consider the grave negative consequences of having such knowledge. I think many would be naive and underestimate the heavy burden, the stress and the anxiety that would come with pursuing knowledge of things that are better off not knowing. One of my favorite characters, Frodo the Hobbit from Lord of the Rings, is given an opportunity by the great elf queen Galadriel to peer into a magic pool which tells of things, shows things that might be. The ring bearer who was already burdened with the task of destroying the evil ring of power is now also burdened with the knowledge of the terror and the destruction that would fall on all of Middle-earth should he fail in his mission. There is some knowledge that is heavy and yet necessary. You see, the knowledge of evil and sin entered into the world at the fall. And that knowledge is here with us now. And for those who follow Christ, we bear a burden of understanding 
this thing we call sin, this thing we call evil, and of a calling to make it known to others who are under God's judgment. But even as we pursue this knowledge, we also gain a better understanding in the riches of God's redeeming grace revealed in Jesus Christ. In our text, Daniel is given divine insight, a authorized interpretation to this great vision. He is given the depth of the knowledge of sin that makes him sick. Tonight, we would aim to understand the dreaded knowledge of sin, the deceitfulness of sin, but also the ultimate destruction of sin. As we look in faith to the sin-bearer and the ultimate sin-destroyer, Jesus Christ. Last time we considered the great power struggle that was illustrated by the ram and the goat butting heads and the rise of the little horn from out of the horn of the goat. And we also took into consideration its implications for the great internal power struggles that we struggle with on a regular basis. It says here in verse 15 that Daniel sought to understand this great vision. And in response to his seeking, God sends the angel Gabriel, who appears a couple of times in the Scriptures, one who stands in the presence of God. Daniel gains the dreaded knowledge of sin that is both fearful and overwhelming. The text shows us that as the angel Gabriel approaches Daniel, Daniel is fearful and falls on his face prostrate. His response to the angelic presence is similar to others in Scripture who fall down in fear and awe before the holy presence of one who has been in the presence of God Almighty. You see, Gabriel represents a holy God. And with that knowledge and with that presence comes for Daniel the dreaded awareness of his own sin, his own frailty, his own corruption and filth. We see a similar dynamic in the disciple Peter, who in response to a miracle of Jesus out on the lake says to Jesus, get away from me, I am a sinful man. We find a similar dynamic when Isaiah receives his vision of the Lord in the temple. Isaiah cries out, Woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. Daniel, one of the godliest men in all of Scripture, is but a ruined sinner before the angel Gabriel and before whom his trespasses are exposed. The presence of the angel awakens in Daniel the awareness of sin, but it's also the angel's interpretation that weighs upon Daniel the burden of the overwhelming dread of sin and its consequences. In short order, the angel gives an interpretation of the ram, which represents the rise of the Medo-Persian Empire, followed by the goat who represents the king of Greece and the horn of the goat represents who we believe is Alexander the Great, the first great king of the Greek empire, who after his death, his 
his empire was divided among four of his generals into, into four kingdoms. But it's from there that the angel gives more detailed interpretation of the nature of this one king. This little horn that we looked at last time who rises up from the in, in descendant of Alexander's power in Greece. And it's this one king who in defiance against God exercises murderous hostility against God's people. His actions are wicked and a grave offense against a holy God. And yet he is the very means of God expressing judgment upon his own people who have already been exiled out of their land, who will, in 70 years' time, return to their land, and yet 400 years later will be punished again for idolatry under the tyranny of the pagans. If God's people would not submit under the gracious hand of God, they would be crushed under the thumb of a tyrant. The knowledge of such coming judgment and destruction leaves Daniel overwhelmed and sick in bed for days. The family of the young and wife and mother of three dread the oncologist's words confirming breast cancer. We naturally fear the threats against our loved ones those that are aging, those in the prime of life, who are especially fearful of such prognosis for young children. The news from a trusted doctor is quite overwhelming. As we wrestle with the prospect of living life without a precious loved one, anticipating a long, painful, resource-draining battle against a disease is daunting. But the knowledge of such diagnoses and the acceptance of the truth is necessary. If we would take constructive steps to meet that challenge, to make changes, to perhaps improve the possibilities of recovery. Most people accept the truth of overwhelming health dangers. However, many people refuse to face the even greater threat of spiritual danger, the eternal life and death consequences of failing to restore one's relationship with the living God. Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. People who refuse to hear the message of God's judgment. Those who are unrepentant and face the coming wrath. They are like patients who completely ignore and dismiss the doctor's diagnosis. They stick their head in the sand. They refuse to confront the reality of their sin. But for those who would follow Christ. This is not an option. Like Daniel, we must understand and make known the dreaded knowledge of sin and judgment to come. I believe as parents, 
we have a responsibility to help our children recognize and take responsibility for their own sin, to master it by God's grace. My fourth grader this past year participated in a Shakespeare play about Macbeth, and the teacher did an excellent job helping fourth-grade students understand the hideous nature of sin and deceit. Nine- and ten-year-olds putting on Macbeth to understand a Christian worldview and the need for repentance and to flee from sin. My wife and I have committed ourselves to exposing our older children to the dangers of sin by allowing them to view some mature themes in drama and video, not overwhelming them with licentious matters, but allowing them to wrestle with the hard realities in life of temptation and mistakes and regret and the theme of redemption. We believe that's important for parents to help children grapple with those things as they grow older and to not live in denial. Well, the heart of these visions interpretation sheds more light on the very deceitfulness of sin as the vision focuses on the future enemy of God's people, who we discussed last time would be Antiochus IV, who would rise up as king of the Seleucid dynasty around 175 B.C., who in his rebellion against God would express great hostility upon the Jewish people, slaughtering tens of thousands in his zeal to Hellenize and to eradicate worship from Jerusalem, actually ceasing temple worship for three and a half years. In his deceit, this evil one will ensnare others, but in the end he will find himself ensnared. And so will all who follow in his ways. Verse 23 presents this little horn, this king who is described as one with a bold face who understands riddles. This phrase is translated elsewhere as a master of intrigue. This is one who is skilled in double dealing, getting his way by trickery. He is like Gollum or Saruman from Lord of the Rings, those who were formerly good but turned to manipulation and deception to accomplish self-centered and wicked ends. Verse 24 describes the greatness of his power, but it's not his own power. It is power on loan, is power borrowed or perhaps stolen, only to be misused to oppress others. Beware of the man who gains power by deceitful means. He is one who will wield that power to crush any who would threaten and challenge his authority. Our text speaks of this one causing fearful destruction who will succeed for a time, who will destroy the mighty men and rulers of other nations, who will oppress and crush the saints. With great cunning, in verse 25, he will make deceit prosper. 
This is one who will rig the system so that only the corrupt, the wicked, advance and gain power and wealth. Consequently, those who follow the rules of righteousness will consequently be punished and pressured to adopt the same dishonorable tactics that have been made standard. You see, such rulers test their subjects by only admitting the corruptible, those whom they can ensnare into their web of deceit in order to preserve and hold on to power and control. And under such conditions, the righteous will suffer under the hands of those who call evil good and good evil. The saints, under such conditions, will be denied their freedom. Perhaps their rights to commerce and even be threatened in their livelihood. But God's word assures us, all God's people in all times, that we will not suffer indefinitely. The tenure of the wicked will not last, but be brought to a devastating end. This web of deceit that this man will spin to ensnare others will eventually ensnare him. In verse 25, we have an echo back to verse 11. As we see that this, the rebellious actions of this ruler is ultimately an affront against the prince of princes, the one who rules over all of God's people and all humanity across the globe. It is God who will determine how long the wicked will prosper, how long the righteous must suffer. And eventually, evildoers will be broken. It says in our text that he will be broken, but by no human hand. And history and the book of Maccabees tells us that Antiochus died, not in battle, not of old age, but of a mysterious and painful disease that afflicted him on return from a journey to the east. He is like Herod, who we see in the book of Acts, chapter 12, who refused to suppress his flatterers, who tell him that he has the voice of a God and not of a man, upon whom God inflicts a disease where he's eaten by worms and breathes his last. These two wicked rulers are ensnared by their own deceit, caught in the net of judgment and dragged before the judgment seat of Christ. In recent weeks, I've been reading to my children the Chronicles of Narnia series for the upteenth time, and we've come to the final book, The Last Battle, and I've been reminded of a particular character, a deceiver named Ginger the cat. Ginger is sly and cunning. He is a co-conspirator with an ape and the Calormene commanders who are plotting to overthrow Narnia. Narnia is a land with talking animals who are under the rule of Aslan, the Christ-like lion figure. It is Ginger who, in his sly and cunning ways, embraces a strategy to fool the Narnian animals, convincing them that Aslan the lion has returned, when in fact the lion figure is merely a donkey, dressed in a lion suit. 
Ginger joins the oppressors against her own people. By expressing a belief that all gods are the same. Which is the same to say that all gods are nothing. And with such power, these atheists, these who refuse to acknowledge a true God, these who are enlightened and above the others who are held captive to such beliefs, use it to oppress and disdain the Narnian faithful who are shackled by their belief and manipulated into slavery. But those who ensnare others will in the end be ensnared. Ginger, in his arrogance, will enter into the shrine to Aslan and to his utter horror meet a great demon who will transform Ginger into a mere brute beast, no longer able to speak. See, that is what happens to those who worship false gods. And to those who refuse to acknowledge the true God, they become mere brute beasts. The sophisticated, who insist that we can handle human frailty by education, or social change, or perhaps even gene therapy. Those who are the elites, who hold on to the reins of power, oftentimes put themselves above the law. Convinced that the law and the rules are for the masses, are for people to be controlled. And those in power will say, do as I say, and not as I do. Such abuses of power were foreign to great leaders in America's past. George Washington, Robert E. Lee, those who suffered hardships with the troops, who refused privileges that were denied the common soldier. Last time we looked at the nature of power to corrupt, we shift tonight to the nature of sin to deceive. Friends, we need to be reminded of the deceitfulness of sin. We have a good warning from Hebrews chapter 3 that challenge us, encourage us to not have an evil, unbelieving heart that leads us to fall away from the living God, but rather to exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of us may become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is a a deceiver that enslaves and ensnares and leads us away from the living God. Pastor Tim Keller says, you don't do sin, sin does you. You cannot control it. You must yield it and hand it over to one more powerful who can defeat it. And as we consider this text, we come away with a principle that the deeper and the greater the knowledge of our sin liberates us with a greater and deeper knowledge of God's grace. We must not let the dread of sin, nor the deceitfulness of sin, to lead us to despair. Rather, we hold out great hope in the prince of princes who will bring about the final destruction of sin. 
the same God who removes the wicked from power, who topples down kingdoms and raises up new rulers. This same God is the one who removes the reigning power of sin. Around the world, various nations and people groups struggle and sometimes labor in vain to remove a tyrant from control in their capital. And oftentimes will suffer the counter-offensive and oppression from the rulers, as is the case today in Syria. Others will only replace one oppressor with one who is ultimately no better. Man's attempt to topple sin, to remove sin from his own heart, is as fruitless as that people trying to remove corrupt rulers from places of power. Recently, my wife and I completed various home projects, uh, mostly painting. And when I go about painting a wall or a piece of trim, I go along and I, I prep it first. I fill in the holes and I sand it, I smooth it out, and I cover it with a fresh coat of paint to make it look fresh without streaks or blemishes. But in a house with seven children, those walls don't stay fresh for long, nor does the carpet stay looking fresh after a cleaning. And that is like our attempts to clean up ourselves. We have many blemishes, and we try to remove them and fill them in and cover over our blemishes, and all of our efforts are short-lived. It is not long before our clean slates are marred again. There is only one who is able to remove the wicked from power. And he is the same one who is able to remove wickedness from the human heart. He is the true king who establishes a reign of righteousness, who will cast out the wicked, who will remove the very power and presence of sin forever. Jesus is the prince of princes the King of kings and Lord of lords, who frees us from our snares, who will present us spotless and without blemish, acceptable in the sight of God. But to receive this gift, you and I must bear the burden that Daniel bared. We must receive this appalling message, accept this message of depravity. And humble ourselves before a holy God. And embrace the good news that all who call upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who trust in his name and his death and resurrection, the one who died for sinners, the one who entered into the tangled web of deceit, nailed to a cross, was crushed for our iniquities and rose again, that we might be forgiven and accepted, and know grace and peace with the living God. A final word from Daniel's message shows us the three responses Daniel has to this vision. We first note that Daniel did not fully understand this vision. And Paul will later explain in 1 Corinthians 13 that we only know in part we see and understand the ways of God is looking through a glass darkly, as though we're looking at a reflection in an imperfect mirror. 
There are many mysteries that will not be fully resolved in this life. We know not fully answers to our suffering, to our grave losses, and other secret workings of God's power and grace. But secondly, Daniel is also overwhelmed, appalled, and sick in response to this vision. He has grieved over the great suffering his people. His people who have already suffered much will suffer again in just a few centuries' time. And though they are guilty, Daniel has compassion upon them. And I believe he demonstrates a compassion upon even unbelieving people who will be caught in the dragnet of God's justice, those ensnared by their own schemes. But thirdly, we note that in despite his appalling response, Daniel goes about the king's business. He served under King Belshazzar, the foolish king, who failed to heed the handwriting on the wall. Daniel did not retreat. He did not reject the world. He served to the best of his abilities, pursued his opportunities to fulfill and advance God's kingdom purposes. Like Daniel, we live in Babylon. We are in exile. We walk through a pilgrim land filled with idolatry and immorality, ruled by people who often times lack faith and integrity. No doubt we are appalled by the many things we see around us. Yet in light of God's judgment and his redeeming grace for for us in Christ, we ought to have compassion. And like Daniel, seek ways to serve and to make known to others the riches of God's grace. Might we be willing to serve, to go and be about the king's business, to be salt and light, to bear witness to the truth, to be bold to reveal the dreaded knowledge of sin without fear that people might find their only hope in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Daniel is given great insight into the mysteries of God. And in many ways, Daniel is a forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was exiled, who was sent to earth to be about the king's business, who understood like no other the hideous nature of sin, who foresaw the judgment that would fall upon his own people and knew that that judgment would fall upon his own shoulders. It was Jesus who looked sin square in the face, confronted our great enemy, and broke the back of its reigning power. We have a great and merciful priest who knows sin better than any of us ever will. The one who resisted temptation in the wilderness and on the pathway to the cross. We have a sympathetic high priest who knows our weakness, who was tempted in every way and yet remained without sin. Our Lord Jesus alone bore the weight of our sin, 
to release us from its weighty burden. Worship the king who brings empires to nothing, who brings evildoers to justice, who dealt the death blow to sin and ushers in a new kingdom that will have no end where we will enjoy his presence forever and ever. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, we indeed are appalled and overwhelmed by the nature of sin, the sin that we see in us, the sin we see around us, the dread of the judgment to come, and yet we are a people who do not despair. For we have a Redeemer who is great, who has conquered sin and death, who is making all things new, who will restore justice and righteousness and life eternal. O oh Lord Jesus, come quickly. Sustain us through this weary pilgrim land, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.